you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I invite you now to turn with me to the book of Jude. This morning we will be spending our time in verses 4 through 7 as we continue in our series. Um, You can also find this text on the insert inside of your bulletin along with a brief outline of today's passage. And this is our second sermon uh, looking at this short but powerful book in our series of Hope for Living Faithfully During Trying Times. We've made our way through 1 Peter, we've made our way through 2 Peter, and now um, we are working through the final book in this series, the book of Jude, as they all speak to and promote a hope that can be found in and through Jesus Christ, no matter the circumstances, no matter what we're facing. And one of those things that both Peter and Jude speak against and and offer hope um, through is when the church faces false teachers. When the church faces those that, um, another word for it, are apostate or come into the church, um, look like part of the church, uh, they look like they practice everything the church practices, but then over the course of their life or what they say or what they do, they prove to be false. And both Peter and Jude warn us about that kind of teaching, about that mindset. But they don't do it without hope. It's not just a fear of the false teachers. It's not a message of panic. It's a message of hope. It's a message of hope that the judgment of God will come. It's a message of hope that God will not abandon His church. It's a message of hope that says, quite frankly, we'll read this morning, they are destined for destruction. That should encourage us, dear brothers and sisters, and calls us to consider this soberly. With that being said, would you please look with me to the Word of God for us this day from the letter of Jude, beginning in verse 4, reading through verse 8. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire." The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. He has promised us that just like the water falls from the heaven and brings life to the flowers of the field and the grass of the ground, so too will his word go forth and nourish us this day. Would you please bow with me as we ask the Lord to provide the nourishment that you and I need. Let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, Every opportunity we get to stand before your word, it is a blessing. 
May we see this as a blessing this day. May we receive it as a blessing this day. And now, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we may truly soak it in. Lord, you call us to be aware of false teachers. You call us to be careful about trusting in our own hearts, our own judgments, our own ways, instead of trusting in you. Again and again, over the course of history, there have been people who have, fall, have followed this path. And so we ask you, would you protect us this morning, protect this church, protect these people, protect our hearts, that we might remain true to you and true to your word. I pray for the strength this day to proclaim your word boldly, and I pray it in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. It could be difficult for us to accept, but there's a reality that this passage um, proclaims, and it's the reason, if you remember, I concluded two weeks ago with verse 4. I start again with verse 4, um, but we have to understand this concept to, to get this, this passage. In some ways, this really is the crux of the letter of Jude. Certain people have crept in designated for this condemnation. God's sovereign will and God's sovereign plan for the church is that some would reject His teaching and seek to lead others astray. Sometimes this will come from people with outside of the church, uh, voices from the community, from society, uh, from different walks and avenues of life that proclaim what God says as false, that uh, rail against His teaching, rail against His truth. But I would make the case that far more dangerous to the church is when this happens inside of the church. That we will have some who come and hear our teaching and hear our truth and even engage in practices um, with the church alongside fellow Christians. And yet over time, they prove by their actions, they prove by their words, they prove by their motives to not only be false, but to be antagonistic to the church. These are the people we must be very cautious with. These are the people that both Peter and Jude write against. And if you look at this, this is not just a New Testament problem. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament, this has been going on from the beginning, particularly in the life of Israel. I mean, let's be honest here. Not all who were part of Israel by birth were Israelites by faith. To put that differently, there may have been a community, a group of people, think the church, but not all of them believed, did they? Not all of them trusted in Yahweh. Some rebelled. Some turned against Him. Some entered into judgment. And Jude understood this well. In our passage this morning, Jude seeks to warn the church by using historic examples of people who looked righteous and were blessed by God, but ultimately fell into apostasy for various reasons. Jude gives us three very real case studies of this happening, which serves as warnings for us today. Each of these should cause us to fear sin and to be careful about what teaching we let into our lives 
and the lives of our families and the lives of our children. And so today we're going to consider each of these warnings found in our passage. First, we will consider the warning being blessed by God does not guarantee belief. We find this in verse 5. Our second warning, and it is a warning, be content with what God provides. We find this in verse 6. And then the final warning in verse 7, disobeying God's word is a recipe for destruction and sorrow. Sobering words, sobering warnings this morning, but let us consider each. And before we we do that, there is a theological statement so important, I cannot help but pause and go over it. There's something that is so vital to the truth of the biblical account um, that while it's not one of the three warnings, we need to take a moment and consider these words. Look with me at verse 5. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, who saved people out of the land of Egypt? According to Jude, Jesus did. Now, I will admit, and depending on what translation you have this morning, it, yours may use the word there, Lord. Not Yahweh, but Lord um, as Master. And while that would be an acceptable translation, and there's some disagreement among manuscripts, I believe the best word there is, in fact, Jesus, because I believe Jude is making this statement. Jesus is Lord. Or to put it differently, Jesus is Yahweh. If you remember when we talked about uh, what's going on in the book of Jude, Jude is writing primarily to a group of Jewish Christians. A group of people who this would have been a profound idea, a profound statement. This would have been their struggling point with converting to Christianity. This would have been what was keeping many of them um, away from converting to the faith. This idea that Jesus could be Yahweh. And this is not something new. This is not something novel. This is what the Bible has been saying from the beginning. A Messiah would come. A Messiah would come. A Messiah would come. Jesus comes and says, I am the Messiah. It, it, it should not surprise anyone. The Pharisees less of all, but, but that's, a, that's another conversation. But Jude says here, and he reminds the people, and he reminds us this morning that Jesus Christ saves And that is so important for you to understand this morning. We're going to come back to it in a moment. But I I, I could not go ahead without setting down right there. Because if you don't understand this, this passage is is nothing but doom and gloom. And so with a a good dose of hope, um, let's look at the warnings. The first warning comes through a historic account. The account of the Exodus. One specific example, the people of God in Egypt and God's deliverance through His prophet Moses. And if you recall that account, and I'll I'll try to summarize an entire book of the Bible very briefly, Israel was in slavery. 
They were, due to their sin, captured by the Egyptians and put under various pressures. Moses, a man of God, was called, was set apart to free the people. He, with his brother Aaron, went to Pharaoh and proclaimed God's truth, proclaimed God's message, and ten times Pharaoh said no. And time after time, God sent plagues which represented false Egyptian gods which spoke against their power, their authority, their rule, their deities. And each time, God was proven to be greater. Pharaoh said no, Pharaoh said no, Pharaoh said no. Then the tenth plague, when the death angel came and killed the firstborn children that were not covered by the blood of the Lamb, where we get Passover from, Pharaoh finally in his anger said flee. But he only said that for a moment. And then he changed his mind again. You see, God's people were blessed. God's people were blessed for he said, this is how you are saved. This is how you are rescued. The blood of the Lamb will cover you and will cover your household. And those that did not believe the Egyptians, they were washed in the flood of judgment. God will always bring glory to Himself and will always bless His people. God is abundantly merciful to His children. He blesses them through this escape. He blesses them through this rescue. And consider this, if if the progression had not taken place, would Pharaoh have sent the entire army after the Jewish people? Probably not. God's power is displayed against the greatest army, the the, the greatest military might in the world at the time, and one fell swoop destroys them in its totality. And so blessing and judgment combined in this one act, this one moment, this one display before Israel and all of the world that Yahweh is God. But this is not the only reason that Jude brings up this event. It is certainly a warning against enslaving and, and mistreating the people of God, but there's a, there's a line here that, that um, it kind of sneaks in on us. Look at that, that last clause. Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He's not talking about Egypt right there. The those that did not believe that Jude is referring to are actually the Israelites that died in the wilderness. Jude is making the case and warning the church against apostasy. People who are part of the people of God, who look like the people of God and walk like the people of God and are blessed by God and yet do not believe. That wasn't Egypt. Egypt didn't believe in the first place. Rather, Jude is making the case. He's he's giving us a warning here. Be careful of those who profess and claim that they live it out with their lives. As we look at Israel's history, and I, and I don't have time this morning, I started writing down a list and it, it became too expansive. What did they do? What did the Israelites do? They're saved at the Red Sea, a miraculous act of salvation. God rescuing them from years and years and years of enslavement and captivity and harsh labor and unfair treatment. 
And they go on this journey. They're promised a land. They're promised a, a God. They're promised to be a people, a special people of God. And how do they respond? They complain. They complain. At just one example, Exodus chapter 16 Verses 2 and 3. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. You have brought us into the wilderness to kill this assembly with hunger. Do you hear the absurdity of that statement? What the Israelites just said, it would have been better for us to be slaves in Egypt than to be freed by the hand of God. They may not be outright saying it, but they're pretty close to doing it. They reject the goodness of God almost immediately after being saved. And this would continue. This, this theme continues, like I said, on and on and on through Exodus, um, through um, the Pentateuch. Exodus 17, it's not food, it's water. Exodus 32, Moses is taking too long on the mountain, and so they decide they want to make their own God. That's a pretty interesting account. I encourage you to take a look at it. That one's particularly interesting because while Moses was up receiving the Ten Commandments of God, Israel was breaking the first three. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the name of or you shall not create any false images, any idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. They were breaking the first three before they got them. They already had the commandments, of course, but that should not surprise us. Moses comes down, and in his anger, he breaks the tablets. Why? Because he's only displaying what Israel's already done. And again, we could go on and on and on and on. Excuse me about how the people of God, Israel, the rescued people, the blessed people, rejected that very God. This is what would cause them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Ultimately, this is what's going to get them kicked out of the promised land. And we need to be careful, church, because it is very easy to look at this account and wonder with amazement at, that those people that have been given so much would so quickly turn away from God. And it's so easy for us to look down our noses at them and go, oh foolish Israel, how could you be so silly? How could you sin in such a way? How could you be so blessed and yet reject the God that you love and the God that loves you? Because we have the same tendencies. We have the same capacity to sin as Israel had. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, if we search our hearts, don't we do the same? The, the very same breath that we praise God for His blessings, we curse Him for His lack of mercy. At the very same time, He, he showers upon us riches and kindness and love and grace. We complain because we want more. We're tired of bread, we want meat. We're tired of meat, we want water. You're taking too long with your promises. We'll make our own. We're not so different than Israel. So we need to be very careful. We have been blessed by God. But we need to be very careful 
that we continue to trust in Him by faith, whether there's blessing, whether there's feast, or whether there's famine. And that leads us to our second point, our second warning. Be content. Be content with what God provides. And for the second point, Jude um, moves from Israel for a moment and then shifts to the angelic beings. We read in verse 6, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, I brought this up when we considered almost an identical passage in Second Peter, um, but I will, will bring it up again here. There's one of two moments, there's one of two historical events that Jude, likewise Peter, could be referring to when he talks about this scene. One, one option is the rebellion of Satan and his fallen angels who rose against God. This scene could be talking about when Satan waged war against God and, and God struck the, uh, the angelic host and a third of them fell with Satan. And if we understood this passage this way, the application or the, the warning here is that these angels have been bound they rebelled against God for wanting His authority, His power. They weren't pleased with what they had. They wanted a position higher. They wanted more. And we know this, at least from Satan's account, because Satan wanted to be God. He wanted more. He wanted what God had. And so this would be a warning against going against God's will for our lives. This would be a warning that tells us to be content with what you have. Do not seek a will that's higher than God's will. And this is a very plausible um, interpretation of this passage. This is a good um, argument for reading it that way, the fall of Satan and the angels. However, there's another passage that this could be referring to, and particularly in the book of Jude, I'm inclined to believe the latter is the correct interpretation. If you remember way back when we were studying the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, gives us this very interesting account where it says the sons of God went into the daughters of men, and then there's Nephilim, and then God, disappointed with what's going on, restricts the age of mankind, limits their years to 120. Now, when we were walking through the book of Genesis, I took the view and encouraged you to read it as this, that the sons of God were the children of Cain and the daughters of men um, were the children of Seth. So the, the children of wrath versus the children of promise. I've since, through further reading and through further study, come to the conclusion that the, the, the stranger, to be honest, but more consistent account is probably the better interpretation, and that is to read it as it says it. That fallen angels somehow, in a twisted way, were impregnating human women causing these ancient creatures, the Nephilim, the, the, the mighty men, the mighty people on the earth. And that this abominable practice is explicitly why God limits the days of mankind. For this is, is such a, a dark practice, such an immoral practice that God puts a, a halt to it. 
He restricts man's years. For if he can sin in that way, how much more could he sin if he had 800 more years to live beyond that? And I, I'm inclined to think that this is, one, the better interpretation of Genesis, but two, the, the, the passage that Jude is referencing here for this reason. Later in the book of Jude, Jude is going to reference a non-biblical book, hear that, non-biblical book called the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch, again, non-biblical, but literature, speaks specifically against the judgment of the angels by God for their falling into sexual sin. And so Jude references a book that speaks against this very thing happening, which inclines me to think, while not biblical, but something everybody would have been familiar with in that society, Jude is making the case and warning us to follow God's commands, to listen to what He says, to obey His teaching, particularly in the area of sexuality. In fact, you could say it like this. Mankind must follow the Word of God or else they will incur divine judgment. And let me just say it like this. Can you, hypothetically, imagine a world that might be under divine heavy judgment due to its lack of obeying God's Word on the area of sexuality? I know that's a stretch, but can you, just in your wild imagination, picture a place, a time of life where this might happen? Because I can. I would argue that the Bible's teaching on this matter being ignored, society's rejection outright of it, as well as a soft stance on sexuality that many in the church have, is what got us to where we are today. I would say Jude's warning is extremely applicable to society, to our life, to the world that we currently live in. It's why it is imperative that we as a church stand for biblical truth, no matter the cost, no matter the consequence from a worldly perspective, no matter what is lost. For I would far rather face the ridicule of man than stand in judgment from God. And I pray that that is your stance as well. Now, let's invert that. Let's look at it positively. Following God's commands not only helps us avoid judgment, but following God's commands, particularly in the areas of sexual purity, will lead to happiness and blessing. Think about it. Let's go back to Israel. There's a reason they grumbled and complained in the wilderness. Why? Because they were walking outside of the will of God again and again and again. And when they walked outside of the will of God, their lives were hard. Their lives were difficult. They caused problems. Problems that caused more problems. It's, it's the slippery slope. There's a reason, statistically speaking, that those who go against God's commands, in, in particular in the areas of sexuality and marriage, studies have shown they are more likely to be depressed, they are more likely to have suicidal tendencies, they are more likely to have an overall sense of hopelessness. 
And we see this in the world with adults, but more unfortunately, we have seen this with teenagers and people younger who are currently being convinced that God did not know best, they are not who God made them to be, and they have the right, they have the authority, and they have the ability to change things. Society lies to convince them that God does not know best. And what does that sound like? Oh, back to the book of Genesis. Did God really say that you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree? He did not mean it, for on the day you eat it, you will be just like him. And isn't that far better than who you are now? It's the same line. Satan, he's not creative. The same line, the same tactic again and again and again and again, and we bite over and over and over. Why change what works? And this is why the world is in such a sad, empty state. The topic, um, Jude doesn't leave this topic, this idea of, of sexual conduct and misconduct. In fact, it's one that Jude brings up again in our third warning. He, he speaks to it from the angelic host, and then he speaks to it again from a, from a humanly perspective. He does so by calling our attention to Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see this in our third section, uh, verse 7. We read there, Sodom and Gomorrah, or just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You can read the account of Sodom and Gomorrah um, in Genesis 18 and 19. You can read of their life, their lies, their destruction. They were well known in their time. They were such great cities of sinners that I could easy, easily see them to be the original cities of sin. A, a, a term that some people lovingly call Vegas. And yet, you would never want to be called Sodom or Gomorrah. In fact, we use the word Sodomite to speak of extremely unnatural sexual practice. Jude brings this up for two main reasons. One, it's very important to know your geography. The land of Sodom and the land of Gomorrah was part of what would become the promised land. It was fertile, rich, abundant in resources. And the people there were descendants of Noah. Descendants of Noah through the line of Ham. And Ham, if you remember, was cursed due to the sin of looking in on his father's nakedness. It, it's difficult to, to come to a conclusion on what the particular of that sin was, but he sinned sexually in this act, shaming his father, which causes his people to be known for sexual immorality. And think about this. When does that take place? Right after he got off the ark. Right after the entirety of the world, save eight, were judged in the flood. 
right after God spoke to his father, and through his father, he and his wife were found saved, were safe, were kept. And then his response to all that goodness and all that mercy and all that blessing is to engage in sin. It's a sobering reminder, and and we should take this very seriously, that those who grow up learning and hearing of God's truth can stray from it. They can turn from God and follow immoral practice. This should cause us to see that no one is immune to immorality. The potential to sin is alive and well in us all. As I would often have conversations with teenagers, well, how far can I go without it being a sin? That should not be the statement. That should not be the question we're asking. The question or statement we should be asking is how far can I get away from it and be safe? Even those who taste the blessing of the Lord are capable of turning their back on Him. And in the story of Israel, we see it always within one or two generations. That's not that much time. It should make us all the more eager to teach these truths to the next generation. It should make us all the more eager with our children. It should make us all the more eager with the people of the church. It should make us all the more eager with our neighborhoods, with our communities, with our coworkers, with our friends. We must proclaim that which is true. For there's only judgment without it. And even when we have it, that doesn't guarantee we'll escape judgment. But there's another reason that that Jude references Sodom and Gomorrah, not just from a geographic standpoint, not just to call our attention to the sin of Ham, but to warn the church. Remember, Jude is writing to some churches. He's writing to, to Christians, and he says that those who are apostate in the church, in the New Testament church, are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Jude is saying there are people in the church who claim to be Christian, who act Christian, who say that they're a part of the church that are engaged in sexual sin. We cannot. We cannot allow this in our midst. We, we cannot be a people who allows each other to engage in false sinful practice however we want and claim that it is good. It is apostasy. It is saying that which is true is true and yet not living it out in our lives. Much like if my child tried to put a fork in a light socket, I would stop him. I have stopped him. It's in his best interest to be alive. It's in his interest to be best interest to be yelled at and corrected. It's in his best interest to be rebuked against such practices, lest he does it again. For I know well what the consequence of that action could be. So we as a people of God, we must guard. We must take a hard line on watching over the flock. We must protect the sheep and defend against the wolves who would seek to devour them given the chance. 
And it seems to be in society today, in our culture, uh, sexual sin, sexual misconduct is, is the prevailing sin of the, of the day. Now, everything I just said I, I believe and I agree with and I believe it's the biblical understanding. But don't fail to hear this. If you are struggling with sexual sin, I am not saying that you're not welcome in the church. If you are struggling with this sin, I'm not saying that we need to kick you out and rid you of as a wolf. What, am I, what I am proclaiming this morning is what the Bible proclaims is if you struggle in this way, the church is the exact place you need to be. Why? Because in the church you will hear the truth, you will find forgiveness, and you will receive the support and love and correction of your brothers and sisters. You need to be here if you struggle in that way. I reject any notion, as well as the accusations, that we as Christians do not love people who struggle with sin of sexual nature. That's not true. God transforms all sorts of people. David was an adulterer. Abraham passed his wife off to other men. People in Corinth were engaging with sexual promiscuity of such vulgar nature that men were sleeping with their mother-in-laws. Sexually broken people, just like any other people who are broken, spoiler alert, all of us, need the same cure, and that cure is Jesus. And that brings us all the way back to the beginning. Jude gives us three warnings against apostasy in this passage. He warns us of the danger of disobeying God. He warns us of the danger of turning from His Word. He warns us of the danger of letting people creep in and preach and proclaim these practices in our church. That being said, he started with the gospel. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, Jesus saved a people. Jesus saves sinners. He brings them out of their sin and into a state of grace. He does this through the gospel. He came and lived a perfect life of full obedience. He never committed apostasy. He never disobeyed God. He never taught anything against the Word of God, nor did He lead people by any way other than through the Word of God. He sacrificed Himself according to that which was prophesied. He rose again on the third day, just as it was foretold. He sacrificed, He gave of Himself so sinners could and would be forgiven. This passage serves as a dire warning against apostasy, and we should feel the weight of that. But that should not be the major thought we have as we conclude. We should walk away from this passage all the more grateful for the love and forgiveness of our Savior Jesus Christ. Because here's the kicker. Peter committed apostasy. The man who wrote the books we just finished reading. He rejected God and God's teaching. He professed that God was not God. Denied Him. And even so, even though that sin was great, he repented of his sin. He turned from his ways. And Christ not only forgave him, but called him and commissioned him to a special purpose to proclaim this truth to the world. 
And so while this is a warning against apostasy, it's all the more a declaration that God saves sinners even from apostasy. The Israelites were wrong. It's far better to walk with God in the wilderness than to be a slave in Egypt. The angels were wrong. You cannot achieve a greater standing than the one that God gives you. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were wrong. It's not better, it's not more enjoyable, it's not more fun to follow the ways of the world against the ways of God. God's plan is perfect. And when we follow His commands, we're given joy, we are fulfilled, and we live our lives to our fullest potential. Praise God for His redeeming work on the cross. Praise God for His blessing. Praise God for His acts of judgment. Beware the false teachers. Trust God. And take heart, for the final day of judgment is coming soon. And it will redeem the church, and it will defeat all those who have fought against her. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm so encouraged by a passage such as this. It's easy to get down as I look at this world, and I see the the degrees of sin and darkness it's easy to be, to, ca- to be cast into despair thinking, where is your victory? You say that you have won the battle, but it doesn't seem that you are winning. But I look at it from a worldly perspective and you see things from the heavens. Your victory has been accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ. Your truth is going forth. We saw that this past week in Monterey, Mexico. We know that that's not the only place this day that your truth is proclaimed. It's being proclaimed to the far corners of the world. And that truth will shatter lies, falsehoods, misunderstandings, bad teachings, bad practices. That truth, the gospel message, will transform hearts and lives. And as we pray that you would continue to do that around the world, would you continue to do that here? Would you continue to do that in our own hearts, in our own lives, the lives of our family and the lives of our children? Oh, that everyone here today, from the youngest to the oldest, would profess faith in you, would repent of their sin and trust in you, that they too might be saved and that they might be well equipped to stand for truth and fend off any false attacks by the evil one. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.